Good people, what's up? We're back. We're back with the Rulers Podcast. I know it's been a long time. I know you've been starving to hear an interview, but like the manager at Harry's Diner here in La Jolla, California, told me last weekend, Kevin Hunger is the best spice. On this interview today, we have Mitch Hedlund, the founder of Recycle Across America and Recycle Across the World, uh, that's taking on the global recycling crisis and the increasing epidemic of waste into the oceans. What's the problem? Well, how about confusion at the waste bin? Uh, In this interview today, Mitch describes to me her solution to take on that confusion by implementing a society-wide standardized labeling system that basically creates one label for a specific waste bin. Uh, that seems to be the ongoing problem and that, un, that I guess that the, the lack of knowledge that people have of throwing specific items into specific wastebands is causing uh, recyclers a lot of time, costing them a lot of time, costing them a lot of money. So a big emphasis today on, on this podcast, I think it's about an hour, hour two uh, what's it going to take to make recycled plastic more affordable than virgin plastic that's made from fossil fuels? We're seeing some big leaps by and strides from companies like Unilever pledging uh, to only purchase recyclable plastic materials. Uh, how do we lower the cost and, and make this you know a product that can can reach demand and at affordable and competitive price? Well. Filtering. Filtering is the number one issue. So um, in this episode today, we're, we're going to talk about a lot. And I think at the end of this issue, the question that we came up with was, is it already too far gone of a problem? Is this something that even though we filter better, even though we find new innovative solutions that can create cool new materials is this going to end the topic and i think mitch has a really good answer for that uh, in this podcast so again folks thanks for tuning in today we've got a plethora of interviews that are about to be unleashed and unlocked so i hope you enjoy this interview as much as i did and without further ado ladies and gentlemen please welcome the real mitch headland four Three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to the Relierist Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Alongside me today, we have Mitch Hedlund, the founder of Recycle Across America. Mitch, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for the invite. Mitch, how, how many of these things do you do? Do you do a lot of these uh, across, throughout the year? Uh, podcasts and media, quite a bit. Um, it seems to be increasing. Uh, when I first started this, you know, nobody really thought there was a problem with recycling. So now that everybody knows that there is a problem, it seems to uh, provide more media opportunities to talk about those problems. So are people coming to you to talk about Recycle Across America or maybe just more your insights on what, what you're seeing in the recycling community? Yeah, I think it's both, you know, um, from our vantage point, you know, they're, they're so interconnected. Um, so I think being, having 10 years in this space and intimately understanding what's going on and how it's very system wide, um, I think that that's gaining some traction for us getting media attention, but what we're doing to solve it is obviously an element of those discussions. And so, Mitch, you just mentioned you ten years of experience uh, with Recycle Across America. But what what experiences kind of led you to the founding of Recycle Across America? I feel like you know, being in, you're in the corporate America, and now you're in recycling in a, in a, in a nonprofit. What's how did that come to be? Um, well, a couple of things. One, I have always been really solutions driven my in, entire life. Um, so I think that that's a component. I have um, a couple of patents and etc. So I think solving solutions and kind of looking at things through a different lens has been very innate with me. But I've been in corporate for many, many years. And then I started to work on communications for uh, companies and how they communicate sustainability. And it was in that experience that I kept witnessing what was happening with recycling. And realizing that, you know, even 10 and 11 years ago, that it was destined to be um, destined to falter. So um, I saw that there were some easy things that could be done to fix recycling and prevent it from 
crisis and collapse. And so I kind of jumped in and, and applied my communications and um, branding expertise and knowledge to the problems that exist with, with recycling. So I, I guess a, a lot of people may have felt the same way, but you took the initiative to actually start Recycle for, uh, you know, across America. Why not just join another, you know, foundation or nonprofit? And, and why did you feel the need to, you know, really create your own? Great question. Um, so when I first saw the problem, which was confusion, public confusion at the bin, and the fact that every single building across the U.S., if they have a recycling bin, somebody in that building is reinventing a label, which is causing the public confusion. When I first saw that problem and saw what we could do to fix it, um, it was just by sheer coincidence that I was asked to be the keynote speaker at a recycling conference to talk about the work that I was doing in sustainability and communications. And by that time, I had already been investigating this issue with recycling and had already kind of started creating what could be the solution, which is standardized labeling for bins. And it was at that industry conference that I presented the solution. And for the first year of this, I actually tried to give it to the industry and bring it to the industry um, and have somebody else do it. Um, but I've learned a lot since then of why there wasn't a lot of motivation at that time to take this solution on. And when I realized, you know, nobody was kind of quick to jump in and take it and make it happen, then I told my husband, I'll do it. And I swear I'll be back in six months. <laughs> and that was 10 years ago. So, um, you know, it's, I think that's the difference between an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur in this case, um, is that, if you have the vision, you know, you're really ready and willing to make the leap to bring that vision to fruition. And that's, you know, that's, that was my motivation. I saw it fixed. I see recycling fixed. I see it easily fixed. And so I just kept going. Uh, yeah. And I can uh, comp completely uh, relate to that because we've interviewed so many people in the recycling industry. Uh, and the main problem that they always say is just, guys, it's just the education around this stuff. We just need to know how to sort these things. If we can sort these things and, and understand its, a, its impact on uh, waste streams, water streams, in landfills, in the world, then we could really make a difference. So maybe for to start off this podcast today, would you, could you maybe educate our audience uh, maybe about some of the difference uh, between uh, of what, or I guess, well, what we should be recycling, uh, the difference between recycling, like something like a styrofoam, like what goes into those landfills and versus compost and, and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also what you just shared is, is really kind of the heart of all of this is I like to use analogies because it's really hard if we're in the middle of chaos and chaos is normal it's hard to envision what things could be like without the chaos. Um, so, and I'm hoping, you know, at some point, I don't know if this is view, if you're able to put in an image, totally. but um, I have this great collage of what recycling really looks like to the public. It's photos of recycling bins. And when you look at that, you can go, oh my God, there's no way that anybody could ever recycle, right? Every label looks different. Even if the rules are the same from one bin to the next, the bins look different. The colors look different. The labels are very in inconsistent and often really confusing. And so I use the analogy of what would happen if everyone everywhere had to create their own stop sign and speed limit sign. So it, at your house, the intersection nearest to you, it was up to you to come up with some way to tell people to stop. And four blocks away at another house, somebody else had to do that. And the school had to do it and the airport all over the country. Right. Um, it would be impossible for people to really be able to drive safely. And yet that is exactly the way that recycling is presented to the public, where every single building, every school, donut shop, airport, somebody in that building who isn't even part of the recycling industry is tasked with creating their own label for the bin. So you and me and 320 million other people walking up to a bin never really know what to do because there's no consistency. So you can't actually educate your way out of that. It's like if, if 
road signs were never standardized and we went through driver's ed, driver's ed would never really help us. But driver's ed works because when we leave driver's ed at 16 and we get the keys and we get in the car, we can drive anywhere in the country and know that ourselves and everybody around us took the same course and is seeing the same standardized signs. Um, so we have to apply that logic to recycling um, and start introducing a standardized labeling system for recycling bins. And then, and then at that point, education actually does work. Hmm. But even without education, the standardized labels are working. So going back to your question of the do's and the don'ts for recycling, um, you know, styrofoam is not something, in most places, it's not something that is recyclable. Um, there might be some really kind of cottage industry somewhere that might have been doing something with styrofoam. But at a critical mass, it's not, it's not recyclable, and it has some issues with it. So, you know, the best thing to do is avoid it if we can. And if we have it, don't put it in the recycling bin. It doesn't belong in there. If you have a way to look and find out who throughout the country might be able to recycle, do the research, but in the end, send it to the landfill. But again, if you can avoid it, refuse styrofoam. And as a business, try not to use it. Um, a lot of things that people are confused, confused about with recycling, some of the biggest um, questions for them is, are my plastic bags recyclable? Um, no, most often they're not. Um, sometimes you can find a retailer and bring them into a retailer if they're clean and they're, they're empty. But please do not put them in your recycling bin. Do not put your recyclables in them. Um, just avoid them, actually, if you can. Don't even purchase them. Don't accept them. Um, but those, you know, that's kind of the beginning of some of the basics that people need to know. Yeah, well, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's just consistent branding around this all. I, I, well, yeah, I guess, how'd you come up with the designs? What was the thought process behind that? And then maybe did you speak with some uh, recycle centers to see what they do take in certain types of, you know, in areas around the world? Or what's that process look like? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, when I got into this, I realized quickly that there isn't a one up, one size fits all. So very much like standardized speed limit signs, you know, we change our speeds going from one road to the next. Um, so the rules are changing on those ro roads as far as how fast we can go. But the way that the information is presented is in the exact same format. So even though recycling programs are different from one area to the next, um, the format of the standardized labels and some of the methodology on those labels is consistent. So it took quite a while for me to kind of figure this out and create a gallery of standardized labels that apply for every type of recycling program. And there's a certain methodology to the color coding um, of how the labels are colored. Um, certain methodology to the font that's used, how much white space there is, what the images are for the um, recyclables. So it, it, it really had a lot of um, thought behind it. But when I started this, I wanted to make sure it wasn't just me that um, had the input. So I brought it to industry leaders um, and convened a group of 40 different industry groups, everything from composters to electronic recyclers to processors to municipalities to help um, give feedback on the labels. And in addition to that, brought it to also some schools and parents and teachers and consumers to make sure that the outside community felt that they were effective. And now we have 10 years of proof on the impact of these labels that show it works. So Mitch, just in a nutshell for our audience here, uh, uh, Recycle Across America, you know, you saw the need that a lot of people weren't educated what to put in these recycle or waste bins. Uh, you yeah. created this standardized label um, after speaking with many recycle centers, many industry leaders, uh, and then now you're able to take these, to, like you just said, to schools, to businesses, to areas that have um, you know mass recycle or you know I guess I want to put I don't want to put waste and recycle in the same sentence, but areas of disposal, um, and and now uh, the the vision going forward is uh, everyone recognizing what to put in certain different bins. Is that kind of 
the consensus. Okay. So yeah, 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 exactly. So interesting. Uh, now why, um, I'm curious, why did you, as a social entrepreneur, did you decide to make this company a nonprofit versus a company structured, uh, as a for-profit? Um, another great question. If it were for profit, it would be easy for other, anybody else to say, well, they're not really the standard. We're going to be the standard. You know, it would make it something where it's mm. a competitive space and it, it doesn't belong in that. And also our goal has been to bring this into federal legislation mm. so that it follows and mirrors the same path that was taken for standardized road signs. Um, you know, where road signs are not a for-profit company. Um, they're not even a nonprofit company. They have become federally legislated so that nobody can go in there and change the look of a standardized stop sign or speed limit sign. Um, so even though across the U.S. municipalities and private sector might be involved in how the roads look or where a road goes or how fast you have to go on a road or where the turn should go, that's all very localized. But the way that it's communicated to the public to make sure that the public can drive safely is protected by the federal government. And so that's our objective is to eventually make ourselves obsolete. Um, I didn't have any desire to create this nonprofit, but when I knew, you know, it wasn't being done, then I, I took it on. But the ultimate goal is that uh, the federal government really takes this and mirrors exactly what we did with federalizing road signs. Interesting. I, I get that too. Uh, you know, a lot of people have the opinion that nonprofits are not a long-term solution uh, for you know taking on some of the world's most challenging issues. However, the stop sign. You asked me about designing a stop sign earlier. The stop sign. The good thing about that it hasn't changed in you know hundred plus years. It's always remained contained. So I, I really get that. It's, it's an interesting yeah. point I've never thought about before. Um, now, what's it been like working with these government officials, and how important are maybe um, you know these cross sector partnerships between you know with the public and private sector? Um, they're critical. You know, we, um, I just came back from DC yesterday and was there all week and had a marathon number of days going from meeting to meeting with um, congressional groups and Senate groups and their staffers um, talking about where we're headed with this. And it, it is, it's really critical to have their understanding of what the real problem is with the recycling crisis. There's a lot of sound bites um, out in the media about what's happening with recycling, and it, a lot of it isn't always actual or, or correct. And sometimes it doesn't show the whole picture. And so we met with them, and we've been going back and forth to DC to make sure that um, our knowledge of what is really happening in the space is communicated to them so that they can make wise decisions based on facts. And um, so, you know, we're excited to be working with Congresswoman um, Betty McCollum. She uh, drafted the language for an appropriations bill that includes the standardized labels. That bill was passed by the House. Um, she is helping to champion this as legislation. Um, we met with Congressman Lowenthal and um, some others this week who are very excited about this as well. Um, it's just common sense. If, if recycling requires all of us, you and me and everyone else, to be able to recycle right, um, then we have to make sure that it's communicated properly for them to do so and that it is protected so that conflicts of interest can't come in and make it confusing, mm. which is a huge element of why recycling isn't fixed. Um, you know, if recycling was truly managed by only the recycling industry that profited from recycling working, recycling would work. But unfortunately, there's some big gaping holes that allow groups that have conflicts of interest to come in and meddle with recycling and make it confusing, which is why recycling is, is in a crisis. Well, first off, congratulations uh, with the legislation through the House. It's amazing and it's exciting. And I think probably who's most excited about this is uh, people in the circular economy who are trying to 
make recyclable plastics a commodity and make that commodity uh, more affordable than um, a a new conventional plastic that's made from uh, a fossil fuel or uh, yeah, a fossil fuel, uh, because uh, that's what plastic is made from, uh, and that's why it's such a big problem as well. Um, now, how I guess maybe is this the vision going forward? How do you see uh, recyclables decreasing in price and, and creating a comparable in the marketplace where these big corporations, such as a Unilever, who has come out, Alan Jope, the CEO, has come out and said, "We are going to put." I think it's a like a tax almost uh, a, an agreed voluntary payable on on new plastics versus recycled plastics, thus decreasing that that uh, price of recyclable uh, plastics. What's exciting for you, and and where do you see this uh, uh, having a, a massive impact in, in years to come? Um, yeah, well, that is also a great question, and the fact that you know it's about the economics. Um, if recycling is bad economically, it's going to be really hard to get anyone behind making recycling, you know, um, kind of widespread. The, the reason why recycling is not profitable right now is because you and I are confused at the bin. Mm. It's because there is no consistency in how packaging is labeled. Um, there's a lot of gaps in that also, which create a lot of opportunity for greenwashing, which then confuse people when they walk up to the bin. But the standardized labels on bins have proven we have 9 million standardized labels in use today across the U.S. Um, we've been doing this for 10 years. We can prove that even in the national parks where you have people coming from all over the world, when the standardized labels are used, their recycling levels at the national parks have doubled, 100% increase. And we were just up in Denali with our great 10-year-old friend, Ryan Hickman, who's this amazing global hero who should be on your show. Um, he's amazing. He was in D.C. with us this week. But um, he and I and a group went around to all of the recycling bins that we had access to in five days, and there was almost zero contamination. In fact, there was only one bin where we found something that shouldn't be in there, in Denali, in the national parks. And the recycling facility that receives the recyclables from Denali has less than 3% contamination. So when anyone talks about the economics of recycling not working and it's really complex and we need more technology and we need all of these things that are very difficult to achieve right now, we're pretty quick to stand up to say that's not true. <laughs> we have 10 years of proof to say that the standardized labels do help people recycle more and they help people recycle right. And if you don't have massive amounts of contamination going into a recycling facility, now all of a sudden the price of all of those recycled commodities become competitive with virgin materials. Um, I'll give you an example that's really important to understand. Um, Congresswoman McCollum's staff went and toured a recycling facility with us. And I had never been in that recycling facility, but I've been in many. And I, I knew the answer to the question I was about to ask. But I had asked the director who was giving us a tour of the facility, can you explain to McCollum's staff collectively how many hours a day do you shut down or how much do you shut down every day due to contamination, due to plastic bags coming in, um, uh, electrical cords, dirty diapers, how much time do you have to deal with that every day? And the facility, which I think it's open for nine hours a day, shuts down for three hours every day because of garbage getting stuck in the equipment. One third of their business comes to a screeching halt. So if there isn't garbage coming into that recycling facility, all of a sudden the economics dramatically change. The quality of those commodities improve, the quantity improves, and the price point of those materials improve. And they can start competing with the virgin uh, plastics commodity. So all of a sudden, Unilever will have ability to start closing the loop. You know, right now they have a public 
public commitment that by 2025, 100% of their packaging globally will be made out of recycled content. It's going to be very difficult to achieve that or even come close to it. In five years from now, when the wheels are falling off the recycling wagon due to this contamination crisis. So, you know, this is the linear story that we're telling in D.C. People need to understand this isn't about building infrastructure. Um, It's not about charging more for recycling services. Um, It's not for forcing more people to recycle. It's really about saying we've got infrastructure in most of the country right now, so let's fix the infrastructure that exists. Let's make it so that every person walking up to a bin instantly can recycle right. And there is a massive autocorrect that starts to happen from that point forward, not just in the U.S., but globally. And next thing you know, Unilever will be able to reach their goal but they won't be able to reach their goal right now if things continue the way that they are. And, and a bigger story, which we probably don't have time for is the impact. We've got all the time in the world. Okay. (laughs) Well, the, the bigger story down the line is the waste in oceans crisis. And there is a direct connection between what we're talking about right now and the fact that there's 58 million pounds of waste going into oceans every day in the world. 58 million pounds of waste, most of which is recyclable, going into the oceans every day. So if we don't fix recycling, that number, which is already horrific, is getting worse. Because when recycling doesn't work in the US, it actually stops the whole thing on a global level. It really starts to affect what the global markets for the materials are. And that starts to affect what happens in a lot of underserved areas like Indonesia, Vietnam, coastal areas um, that have a huge mass of waste issue to start with. So, okay, I went off on a tangent there, but it is a big story. Let me chime in. I'm glad you brought up Indonesia in these areas because I'm fascinated with these areas. Now, I didn't mention recycle across the world as well. Is that, uh, is that true? Is this a, a, another initiative, recycle across the world? Okay, I was going to say, um, as a global economy, just to go off your points, $2.2 trillion we're losing because of waste going in it's in, on, in terms of uh, damage to the environment and uh, social standards. Um, you know, these, these products are going to outlive us. They're going to outlast us. They're 500 plus years until they biodegrade. Um, and then, uh, I like the okay, term is virgin plastic. I'll make sure I use that next time. Got it. Um, and then if, if it's three hours to sort, if it's a sorting issue, uh, 365 days a year, I did a little math, you know, it's almost 1100 hours a year that's lost just to people unaware about what they're sorting into the, the bins. Um, and I, and I do get that though. It is, you know, I feel like people are complacent, um, including myself, you know, uh, living in Southern California, growing up in Oregon, I used to recycle all the time. It was super easy. Moving down to Southern California has been a lot more difficult. Um, I tried to take, um, all of our (laughs) empty beer cans to the recycling bin and, or to a grocery store. There was no, uh, bottle return there. There's no bottle. I'm like, Hey, where's another bottle return? You say, go to the, the bonds, uh, just 15 minutes away. They've got one. I go there. Sorry, we just got rid of ours. You got to go to this rec- recycling center. And by the time I was just like, all right, I'm over it here. I'm going to put this, these bags. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mitch. I said, I'm over it. I put the bags no, in the, in the grocery, in the grocery yeah. cart. I said, I'm out of here. I'm not leaving this in my car. I'm not going to drive another 30 minutes to recycling bin. Yeah. And you have no idea what you just shared with me. I mean, this is... So relevant. That little boy that I was talking about, the 10-year-old, Ryan Hickman, mm. um, who I brought to D.C. Did I bring that up during yeah, this you did. conversation? Yeah, you did. Okay. So his name's Ryan Hickman. He's a global hero. One of his videos has like collectively over 200 million views on it. He started a recycling company called Ryan's Recycling when he was three. He lives in San Juan Capistrano, which is just north of you. Um, He got discovered by Ellen DeGeneres, went on her show, became famous. He became a CNN young hero. He's on 
the Today Show to, on Monday morning, um, this upcoming Monday. He's amazing. He reached out to us a year ago. We knew about him, um, but he reached out to us a year ago because he had seen one of our celebrity TV commercials with Kristen Bell for our Let's Recycle Right PSA campaign. And he said, I want to help recycle across America in this standardized label initiative. So they reached out to us saying, how can I volunteer to help? The reason why I brought him to DC was to not only tell that story, but also to tell the story that last month, his recycling facility called Replanet, which is what you're talking about, shut down. It went bankrupt. The largest recycling company in California called Replanet, which took most of the redeemables, which is what you were just trying to do with all of your great beer cans, um, went bankrupt. So this is how real this is. And if the new location where they now drive an hour every, every time they go now it's an extra hour for them to do this good deed um, of taking everybody's recyclables there. And he is getting a little coin on the side, which is awesome. But when that shuts down, he might have to shut down his business and everybody who knows about Ryan not everybody, but a lot of people called saying, Ryan, do you want to come and pick up my recyclables? Because now that replant shut down in our community, I'm not going to drive anywhere else to bring them. In fact, I'm thinking it's all a hoax. This is what people are saying. Even if I put it in the recycling bin, I know it's going to go to the landfill. So there is a massive, the industry doesn't want me to use the word collapse, but I don't know how else to say this. Yeah. There is a massive collapse. There is a 93% increase in fires in recycling centers and processing centers since China did the ban. 40% of recycling centers in the U.S. have burned or burned down. Anybody who says that this isn't a crisis and a collapse that doesn't see some urgency in this is profiting from the problem. Hmm. I mean, that's how strongly I feel about these things right now. I have witnessed for 10 years what is happening behind the scenes that is preventing progress. And it really has to stop. Um, Redemption programs do work. You witnessed it up in Oregon. They have a 90% capture rate for every beer and bottle or can or, or Coke or Pepsi bottle or can that's, that's sold 90% of them come back in Oregon. It works. Um, We're part of an intercept investigative report that just came out this morning on this very subject. And I'll send you the link for it. Yeah, definitely. Please do. I just sent it up to the CEO of Unilever um, because I don't think a lot of these companies actually understand what's happening behind the scenes that's preventing progress. So your timing on this, on this interview is really critical. You have no idea how, how, um, you know, the timing is really sensitive right now and your questions are so poignant. Mitch, you've got, you brought a great point. Economics, study of incentives. A lot of people think, you know, okay, America, yeah, we recycle, we do our, we do our part. It's the countries that are the bigger polluters in the nation that are the problem. I just want to take a, take a stab at that really quick and then go back to recycle, uh, recycle across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Indonesia, coastal communities. Uh, the study of incentives, back to economics, a company called Plastic Bank we interviewed. I'm sure you've heard of them. Uh, they go in the coastal communities, uh, such as Haiti and uh, the Caribbean. Big problem in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically pay people to collect bottles that then they resell, sort and resell to companies like SC Johnson. Good, good model there. Good incentive for these, the unbanked, the unidentified people gives the economy. Obviously, it's probably not going to work. I, I wouldn't see people, I mean, at least right now in California, walking out, collecting plastic to then, you know, recycle as a job, as a way of, of living. In Indonesia, I was in, in Bali. I had the chance to go there this summer. Um, they're big on recycling. Uh, the, the big nonprofit, I think Four Ocean started out there. Mm-hmm. They burn all of their trash and plastic in these moats. Literally in the moats that go into the waste streams and the beach is a mile away. Not even. 
So there's another big problem right there. These coastal communities, yeah. all the reefs are dying out right there. And it's in those exact locations. So back to the, the question is, I guess, what is the incentive for Americans, for Indonesians, for coastal communities to recycle plastic to then thus reduce the cost of recycled plastics versus version plastic? What's the incentive? Um, a couple. There's a lot, actually, more than a couple, but I'm going to give you a couple, starting with at home in the U.S. So, and I'm going to bring up the standardized labels again, because I'm not self-promoting, but it's important to understand the economic benefit. So standardized labels have been donated to Orlando K-12 schools. Um, Actually, we've about 9,000 K-12 schools across the U.S. are now using the standardized labels. But I want to give you two examples. Um, Orlando K-12 schools received them, put them on their bins, and within the first year, they saved $370,000 net savings in trash hauling fees. Their recycling levels increased so much. The second year, they saved $1 million more. In two years, the school district, they didn't even pay for the labels received $1.37 million in landfill hauling fees, trash hauling fees. Um, Clark County Schools, which is in Las Vegas, received standardized labels for their K-12 schools as a donation. They saved $6.6 million in trash hauling fees, net savings, which just goes into their general fund, helps teachers, helps programs. That's real information. Now I'm going to switch gears and say the U.S., we generate more waste than any other country in the world. Straight up. The most amount of packaging and waste, we generate the most volume in the world. We have a recycling infrastructure in most areas of the U.S., in most of the densely populated areas. We have a really caring public, such a caring public, in fact, that once an article, an op-ed was written in the New York Times discrediting the value and importance of recycling. And there were more hate mail, there was more hate mail written about that article to the New York Times than any other article in the history of the New York Times on any other subject. So that article that was, you know, saying that recycling is garbage, literally, that was the title of it, received more hate mail. The New York Times received more hate mail on that article than any subject in the entire history of the New York Times. So the public is really passionate about it. Bipartisan voters, people, you know, Democrats and Republicans are very passionate about recycling. They believe it should be done. 94% do. 74% think that it's a national priority. We have manufacturers like Coke and Pepsi and Unilever that are saying that they want these materials back to use again. So by all accounts, we have like the best scenario for recycling to work and for it to be economically viable if there is no contamination in there. It would be incredibly economically viable. The one thing that's preventing it two things that are preventing it. One is the contamination because of the public confusion, but the deeper rooted issue are conflicts of interest that won't, that keep this confusion going. If the U.S. did it right, and let's just say standardized labels being one solution, there might be some other things that need to happen, but if one solution was implemented and legislated where everywhere you went, the standardized labels were on every bin and the public was able to recycle right, contamination was almost non-existent. The economics of processing those materials became stellar. Um, There would be a ripple effect globally on that, but it is really hard to tell Vietnam or Indonesia or Singapore or Malaysia for them to start managing their waste right when we that have this massive land base can't even get it right. Um, In the state of California, there is enough litter that's headed to the oceans that it costs $500 million a year to try to retrieve. The state of California spends half a billion dollars trying to retrieve the litter that's destined for the Pacific. So it's not just, it's not just another country issue, it's ours as well. 
also, if we fix the recycling in the U.S., there's more demand for it here in the U.S. from our own manufacturers where we won't have to actually ship it. We knew we were sending cruddy, garbage-filled recycling to China. The U.S. knew that. If it wasn't garbage-filled back then, U.S. manufacturers would have wanted to use more of it. There would be less demand for it to sell overseas and to ship it. And the reason that I bring that up is because there also is issues with containers going over when it, things are being shipped overseas. Um, you know, there's things that happen in transport also, which is a, a marine debris issue, a real issue with transporting recyclables. The more that we can show that it can be done properly, the more that Indonesia, who, by the way, wants to now adopt the standardized labels, um, they, uh, our partner in Indonesia just met with the ministry and they have given it the thumbs up to start implementing the standardized labels in Indonesia. Nice. They, one more thing that I'll share with you kind of related to what you were talking about with Bali. Um, there's 17,000 islands in Indonesia that makes it logistically a bit of a nightmare anyway, but it also makes it a nightmare not to recycle because they have very little space to be able to landfill so they start to burn but the interesting thing is in jakarta where they have big manufacturing and they need recycled plastic they're purchasing it from another country and shipping it in now you've been in indonesia it's crazy that anybody is walking on plastic bottles on the beach or that they're burning it when a few islands away they could actually take their own recyclables of plastic and bring it to Jakarta for manufacturing. It would save Jakarta money. It would save their beaches and open up more tourism because it would be cleaner. Um, there are 3 million unregistered, um, call, they're called illegal pickers in Indonesia. Um, they actually would start to have healthy, good paying jobs. If the recycling program was really successful and organized and standardized um, and that they could be part of that whole system. So the whole thing can be easily fixed if we start fixing the very like point A of it. Point A is let's present recycling to the public in a way where they can actually do it right. There's a huge autocorrect that starts to happen even in our own country and other countries that are underserved and don't have great infrastructure right now can then follow suit. And when every country is presenting recycling in a really organized and standard, standardized way and it's working well, their own internal manufacturing using those materials can start to thrive. Switzerland has a very organized recycling program. They have almost zero litter. Indonesia has a almost, in many places, non-existent recycling infrastructure, and what does exist doesn't work. They have tons of litter. That's not a coincidence. So, you know, if recycling is presented in a way in the U.S. and around the world where it actually is presented in a way that people can take seriously and act on and do properly, the economics take care of themselves. The demand takes care of themselves. And in the end, there will be less waste in oceans. I like that. Mitch, uh, thanks for sharing. Um, the first, and I'm going to go back to the beginning of what you just said, though. Um, speaking with uh, recycling companies, um, if you're a business owner listening to this, the way you can save money, like Mitch, I asked her about incentives, is on, I think you call it something else. I'm going to call it janitorial. Um, by, by sorting your objects, um, you will save a lot more money on janitorial uh, because it's, it's less time for someone to go pick up the trash. Uh, it's, it's, it's sorted already. And these companies uh, will put, be putting more money back into, uh, into your business in the long run with sorted materials, recycled plastics, all the above. Um, now I'm thinking about the, the closed loop. A lot of people, I guess all we've been talking about today are beer bottles and little cans that you can recycle styrofoam as well that, that you can't recycle. Now, what about something like a diaper? Now this is interesting because we've interviewed a company called G diapers. They're great. And they, they do t decomposable, 
um, uh, diapers. <laughs> and how, like, is, is that a problem? Can, if, if a baby, you know, does its thing in a diaper, can I put that diaper, that plastic, yes, because it's made from plastic, virgin plastic, can I put that diaper into a recycling bin? And if I can't, how does that loop get closed? Because yeah. there's the issue right there, right? So can maybe elaborate on that a little bit, because I'm sure diapers aren't the only example of something like that. That's not recyclable. Yeah. So diapers, absolutely. Please, I speak probably on behalf of all recycling processors. Um, please do not put dirty diapers in the recycling bin. There's an article from the state of Washington where this poor guy who's working in a recycling facility says that he's going through, I think he said 500 tons of garbage a day is going into his recycling facility, 500 tons. Mm -hmm. um, and most of it, a lot of it is dirty diapers. Um, just because something is plastic doesn't make it recyclable. In fact, unfortunately, most things that are plastic are not currently recyclable in most residential and traditional recycling programs. So you know, if we really want to be responsible, you know, environmentally friendly citizens, we need to start making some personal decisions not to use so much plastic in the first place. Um, dirty diapers, it, I mean, I have kids, it's really hard to get around diapers, the diaper issue. Um, so if people are using plastic diapers, then, you know, just know that it has to go to the landfill. If you can reuse reusable, I, I think that that's going to be a better alternative. Somebody might have done like a, a, a life cycle analysis to see how much water and soap is used. But the world isn't going to be perfect. Unfortunately, we've turned into a species that needs and wants things. We are on computers, and at some point, parts of these computers are going to be obsolete and not usable. Um, we need to manage that as responsibly as we can, but we have become consumers um, of many different types of products and many are not recyclable. So if we expect perfection, we're going to get paralyzed as a society, but we have to expect massive progress right now. And so let the dirty diaper go into the trash bin use a cloth diaper and check out life cycle analysis. Or if this compostable diaper sounds like a good idea, then I guess bury it in your backyard. I don't know. Um, could be smelly. I know how many diapers everybody has to go through when they have kids. But um, do some research. But don't let the aluminum can go in the landfill. Make sure that the aluminum can definitely gets into the recycling bin. Make sure that the clean office paper and cardboard, you know, decrease these things as much as we can. But if we have them, make sure that they're getting in the recycling bin. You know, there's some things that we can't do away with yet. Um, so if they're recyclable, make sure they go in the recycling bin. Um, any clean cardboard, any clean paper, not tissue, not paper towels, not toilet paper, but clean, write-on paper, um, cans, metal cans that are empty, um, glass bottles are questionable in a lot of communities right now, plastic bottles, number ones and number twos. Um, just make sure that the really obvious things are going into the recycling bin. And as much as we'd like everything to be recyclable right now, worrying about all of those other things actually is interfering us with us doing the right thing with the right items right now. Um, so I think we need to lessen our expectations of perfection and just make sure that we're at least getting the basics done properly. And if we can do that everywhere in the U.S., that is world-changing. And then we're going to be ready to do the next layer of things that are a little less recyclable. But right now, we know an aluminum can is recyclable, and it's going to the landfill or an incinerator right now because we're, we're not doing anything right. So in the case of babies, we're kind of throwing the baby out with bathwater and the diaper, <laughs> too. Well, I did, the reason I say that is because they're the companies are good good friends of ours, and uh, you know, they claim five hundred million diapers a day go into landfills. Five hundred million diapers a day a day go into landfills. So it's an interesting topic. Um, yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, I hate 
this being such an existential issue, it's a big problem. Again, you know, these materials are going to be here for longer than we are. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes, you, yes, we want to recycle more. Patagonia, 60% recycle more material, recyclable uh, materials. They want to bring that to 100% uh, by, by 2025. Yeah. You know, capital market solutions, let, let's change the world. And, and I work and deal with that and read and, and devour this stuff every single day. And I think it's great. I think it's what we need to do, obviously. But you're right. That's the, the first steps. But sometimes I, I, I feel like a problem like this might be too big. And I, and I wonder... You know, even even if I have a shirt that's a hundred percent recyclable, I could still be that complacent human being and throw that in the trash can after it, after it's done, and that thing goes right back to, you know, uh, just a, uh, a landfill. Yeah. So I I wonder, you know, is the long term solution just a plastic ban? And if you were to have a plastic ban, um, what what would that do to the economy? What would that do to your business? What would that do to the world? Yeah. God, I love your questions. This is so great. You're really covering everything. Um, plastic bands work. They work. Um, in communities where they have made efforts to ban plastic bags and ban straws, it's working. So I'm a fan of banning unnecessary plastics. Um, what I have said, I recently had a chance to speak with groups that represent the plastics industry. And what I've said is when I was born, there were 3.2 billion people on this planet. Do you know how many are on the planet now? 7.9 billion. Yeah. So, I only know that because we've got a counting clock on really real-leaders.com if you ever want to go check it out. Yeah, I, I know that. I check every once in a while, but that's, that is, that's in my lifetime. I'm old, but I don't feel that old. And that's just in my lifetime. So the plastics industry, the virgin plastics industry and the fossil fuel industry that, you know, plastic is derived from, you're still going to get revenues you're going to be making plastic medical equipment and bike helmets right now and other things that aren't really recyclable, but let these materials, this, the plastic consumable packaging, please let it go. And the reason that I'm saying that is because they are fiercely fighting any bans. And not only do they fight bans when legislation is proposed, but they now go into states and they preemptively ban against bans. So in some states and some cities, the consumers and citizens can't even ask legislators to ban the products. It's now illegal to ban certain plastics. So this is what's happening behind the scenes is the virgin plastics and the fossil fuel industry is massively increasing production. And they are doing all sorts of things, not just in the US, but also in Indonesia and all around the world to make it very difficult to ever restrict their products. And again, my message to them is you got to stop being so greedy. You're going to have tons of plastic production from just general things, but you have to let some of this go and allow it to start being recycled or allow it to be banned. Um, because the greed, even the people that are making so much money on this new virgin plastic production and who are making sure that there's bans, they're shooting a hole in the ship that they're even standing on. It's not like they have another planet to go to, you know, these issues are destroying the ship that all of us are standing on and it's time for them to step down on some of this. Um, bands, I believe in them. Um, I think industry is terrified that once it gets started, they're going to keep being told what to do by the governments around the world. But I think we need to say that at least right now, let's start getting rid of unnecessary plastics, especially in coastal areas. Let's get rid of plastic bags. There are alternatives. 
They would want people to believe that there aren't alternatives or that this is for underserved, you know, poor people. That's not the case. There would be more benefits to creating a culture of reusable bags and exchange bag programs than what we're dealing with right now. Um, so your point is really good, um, but it would be really difficult to ban plastic. And anyone that says ban plastic and leaves it that open-ended isn't being realistic. We have it. Unfortunately, it's like a necessary evil right now. But the plastic bag, my household, we have not bought plastic bags for five years. We live without them. No Ziploc bags, no tie bags, no nothing. Um, Occasionally, they end up coming into our house with, if we buy something, but we use reusable bags, and we don't even line our trash containers with them. It's easy to live without some of these things. Um, we can't let the industry make it sound like we don't know how to exist as a species without a plastic bag. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because they... Keep going. Yeah. I, was, I was just going to say, sorry to cut you off, Mitch. I was just going to say, you're completely right. Because when you say society can't exist without plastic, uh, when, uh, as in, you know, saying that's ridiculous that we can't, that we can't, we can't. <laughs> sorry, a little, little tongue tied there. But the movie, The Graduate, I don't know if you remember that movie, but maybe coming out and say plastics, it's the future, plastics. And I hate to give capitalism and, and you know the for, the fossil fuel industry such a bad rep uh, because that's just how it started out, and that's you know the, it was the incentive to maximize shareholder value and profits. So, I guess the question for you, Mitch, is what's it going to take? Is it leadership? Um, is it is it a decision? Is it an incentive that's going to reduce the cost? Um, fossil fuel industry is very powerful. What's it going to take to make these changes? Yeah. Um, definitely government intervention. And I know a lot of people don't like big government. Um, I don't necessarily either in a lot of areas, but oversight and regulation is absolutely necessary. We all survive because of certain things, you know? Um, so anyone who says we don't need government to come in, parts of their lives are better because there is some place for government. And, and oversight and enforcement. So it's ludicrous for anyone to say, you know, government doesn't belong in this. That would be like saying government doesn't belong in road safety and therefore shouldn't have re- legislated road signs. I can tell you a scenario of what would have happened if government didn't legislate road signs. The, it would be open to the private sector promoting road safety and it would be led by the auto body shops and the tow truck companies and people that sell caskets. And just think about that for a minute and they would all be promoting road safety. And would it be actually safe if you knew that they were all profiting from it, not being safe? No, it wouldn't. And that is exactly what's happening with recycling. Without any protection of how recycling is communicated to the public, there's tons of greenwashing. It's incredibly confusing for people to recycle right. The most dominant businesses in the recycling industry are landfill companies. So, you know, um, this is all fact. This isn't opinion. It's not slanderous. Waste management is even according to them and everybody else in the industry, the most dominant voice in the recycling industry in the U.S. 90% of their revenues come from landfill. So you've got the most dominant recycling company, but that company, 90% of their revenues come from recycling not working. Um, You know, you've got the virgin plastics industry and you can look this up on Bloomberg Financial, when um, the recycling ban took place with China, there was a $185 billion uptick in new virgin plastic production and investment to fill the void of recycling collapsing. Currently, right now, and again, look this up, there are 17 massive new virgin plastic production plants that are being constructed right now in the U.S., If you read that Bloomberg Financial Report, uh, plastic production 
for a specific consumable product is to quintuple next year. So we have a bit of the fox dressed up like hens watching the hen house. And it requires, it's now time for the government to come in and really start protecting how recycling is communicated to the public. The government, federal government doesn't have to tell the industry how to manage their business. It doesn't tell them what materials to collect or manage the pricing of that commodity. But the federal government does have to start managing how recycling is communicated to the public if we want the public to be able to recycle, right? Um, and and so. Mitch, it's, it sounds like this is an every, everybody, an all-stakeholder approach initiative. This is something that affects everybody. Yes. We talked about a lot today, Mitch. We talked about what goes into waste, uh, in, into uh, recyclable bins. <laughs> Uh, what goes into waste bins? Uh, we talked about my beer can example. We talked about Ryan Hickman and, and his uh, recycling plant in California uh, imploding and all the other recycling plants imploding in the, in the China ban. Talked a little about diapers today. Talked about the circular economy, Indonesia, coastal cities, and how this devastation is having a $2.2 trillion impact on our global economy. With this being such an existential issue. When I say existential, I mean, it's involving life itself and for years to come. This plastic is going to outlive you and I combined and our grandkids. With this being such an existential issue, and you're saying the government needs to be involved and everyone needs to be involved. Everyone needs to stand up and, and take lead of this. Mitch, we see you doing the same thing. You're part of that, that, you know, that domino effect. So I guess my last question to you is, is what is your definition of a real leader? Um, well, I think it's to have a vision. Um, you know, it, it can be anything from if you're in a widget industry or if you're leading people or whatever it is, you know, you have to have a vision of how something can get, can be better and where things need to go. I mean, if you think of a leader marching forward, you have to have a really clear vision of where, where you're headed um, and where you hope others will follow. And I think it's also not just one person. I think it's really understanding that everybody who's headed in that direction is a leader. Um, but you have to have a clear vision of where you're going and where you're helping to, you know, bring other leaders and other um, groups. But you also have to absolutely understand the strategy because nothing is a straight line. If I have learned anything in 10 years in doing this, there is no, there, there should be a straight line between A and B, but because of human nature, because of greed or conflicts of interest or all sorts of weird elements, nothing really goes in a perfectly straight line. So you have to have a strategy to navigate that as you're trying to get to that better destination for society and the greater good. Um, and then, um, you know, you really have to have determination and perseverance. But I would say right now where I am and what I'm contending with as I'm speaking out about these conflicts of interest, you really have to have courage because there is a lot of resistance to change and it's, it, it can be intimidating. Um, but if you have a really clear vision of a better destination and how things can be better at the end with whatever your idea is, then you have to have the courage to defend that. And keep going even when you get that pushback from very big organizations. And I have to say Greta, little Greta Thunberg, or, um, she is, she's remarkable because she is demonstrating that and she's asking others to stand up and make something happen. Don't just watch. Don't talk about it. Don't tell her you're proud of her. Don't tell her you're, you know, you're inspired by her. But tell her that here's the plan because of you, we're going to expedite this. Um, we're not going to wait and be bureaucratic. We actually have to be courageous and push through to get to the next thing. And, and her line of, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? 
is, is just so amazing as she's talking to leaders. And, and that's what I've said in D.C. Uh, this week and what Ryan Hickman was saying with me, too, as we're talking to the leadership in the U.S. Um, we have to federally legislate this. I like it. I like it. Vision. Vision about where you're going. Strategy. And courage. Mitch, thank you so much for coming on the show today. The Really Is podcast. For Mitch Hudland, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you all to keep it real. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. That wraps up for this interview with Mitch Hedlund, the founder of Recycle Across America. What'd you think? Did you learn anything? Let me know. Leave a review. Like, subscribe, share. If, if you don't do social media, if you don't do the Facebook, the Twitter, email us, info at real-leaders.com and let us know what you think. Let us know who we should be talking to, who you want to see on the podcast, and we'll do our best to reach out to them and, and uh, set this up, okay? Just want to thank you all for tuning in again. I know it was a long interview. We've got plenty of more coming up uh, in the hopper. Uh, great, solid interviews that we've been conducting at conferences over the past few months. Uh, I think we've got 50 on deck. So we're going to be choosing the best of the best and helping you see a better version of yourself and the world. All right, folks. Thanks again for tuning in. Magazines online, real-leaders.com slash subscribe. Go on there. Check it out. Big fan of this new edition that's come out with Elon Musk on the front cover. And I think you'll like it too. All right. Appreciate you guys all tuning in again. And stay tuned for the next episode of the Earliest Podcast.